You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. John chapter 6, we find ourselves in verse 36. And if you remember, we are in what has been referred to as the bread of life discourse. It is that uh, discourse where Jesus uh, makes that famous statement, I am the bread of life. And we saw that last time we were in the the text, that he says this, that he is the, the true bread. And when we get to verse 36, we read, But I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What a tremendous passage of Scripture. Let me ask you this question. What happens when one does not adequately feed on the bread of life? Right? Jesus has been clear in the text. He is the bread of life. And there's great implication here when it comes to our spiritual nutrition. That one must feed upon Christ. And the question comes is how does one do that? It isn't like we can follow him like the crowd did in John chapter 6 from place to place. That we can hear these great messages and see these wonderful signs We don't have access to the Jesus Christ Sermon podcast. For many in the Christian world today, there is a great emphasis on Jesus being the center and feeding on him. But when it comes to this feeding on Christ, it it becomes mixed with secular and pagan ideologies. Let me give you one example. I listened to a a podcast the other day about helping or ministering to one another. It was about counseling, soul care, all these terms that are used in that regard. And one in this podcast had a radically uh, different understanding of, of soul care than I do. And I would contend that the Bible does. For instance... This person believed that the purpose, the purpose of, uh, of counseling or, or caring for another was to help them get in touch with their own soul, which is very beautiful, they said. And, and one just needs to, to recognize how beautiful their, their soul is, to, to recognize that, the who they, they really are. And the question is, is, how do they do that? And the answer was through spiritual activities, like centering prayer. What is centering prayer, you might ask? Well, let me just share with you from the Got Questions website on this. They do a good job of keeping it, um, giving a good definition in a short space. They say this, quote, A centering prayer is an initial step of contemplative prayer. 
In the centering prayer, the, the practitioner focuses on a word or, and repeats that word over and over for the duration of the exercise. Centering prayer involves choosing a sacred word as the symbol of your intention to consent to God's presence and action within. Centering prayer usually includes sitting comfortably with your eyes closed, settling briefly and silent, introducing the, the sacred word. When a centering prayer becomes aware of thoughts, he or she is to return ever so gently to the sacred word. This centering prayer is followed by a period of opening one's mind and heart and the soul to the influence of God, which is the contemplative prayer. Although, this has still got questions, although this might sound like an innocent exercise, this type of prayer has no scriptural support whatsoever. In fact, just the opposite of how prayer is defined in the Bible. The Bible portrays prayer as being comprehensible communication with God, not ecstatic, mystical meditation meant to clear the mind of thought. A centering prayer is more like mystical chanting than true communication with God, end quote. If you're saying, boy, that, that sounds a lot like Eastern religions or New Age, not Christianity, you would be right. Let me share with you another quote, this time from a, a Catholic source that recognizes the dangers here. We don't agree with Catholics on uh, everything, but certainly we do on many things, like uh, basic things, like the nature of God. So this is so basic that we should be shocked that many are fooled and, and deceived when it comes to these things. This is from uh, Catholic.com. It was actually uh, from a print article that appeared in the magazine in 1997, so not new which rightly makes the connection between centering prayer and Eastern religions. I, I quote it, Eastern religions, in contrast, lack revelation of God as personal creator who radically transcends his creatures. Though possessing many praiseworthy elements, talking about Eastern religions, they nonetheless seek God as if he were part of the universe rather than its creator. This is because they are monistic, seeing all reality as one. Thus, God is a dimension, though hidden, of the same reality which, is part, which man is part of. The goal, therefore, is to peel away the exterior world, to get to the spiritual reality beneath it. God is conceived of as an impersonal state of being. In contrast, for Christians, God is real. And the whole of the universe exists by God's free choice. Creation is second, contingent is the second contingent reality, and in Christian thought, it did not need to exist. So, and, and rightly, Eastern religions often seek the divine as if it were part of creation itself. There's no uh, creator creation distinction. So what does it say, then, if we are trying to get in touch with the divine by meditation and looking deep within ourselves to figure out the true self, the true soul? It says that you're looking in the wrong place. That's what it says. Let me just share how the article ends. Hence, the church has been a special target of the devil as today, as indeed it has been since Pentecost, 
The rapid spread of centering prayer in the past decade into many areas are at the very heart of the Catholic faith. I believe this is part of the devil's strategy against the church. That was the case in 1997, sadly. It isn't only a Catholic issue. Matt Slick, a Christian apologist, says this about centering prayer. He says this, quote, centering prayer is an unbiblical and dangerous practice. It can put a person in an altered state of consciousness and open him up to spiritual connection that is not in harmony with Scripture. Instead, we are to seek God in prayers that are non-repetitious, with a focus on God's word and truth, with an active mind seeking to find the true and living God through the revelation of the scriptures and communication with his son, Jesus Christ. In short, avoid centering prayer and avoid whatever church promotes it, end quote. Matt Slick nails this. The first thing here is the the spiritual dimension of all of this. This is more akin to to pagan and occult practices than true Christianity. And and you don't want to mess with that kind of stuff. And it opens you up to things you don't want to let in. This is what he means when he speaks of spiritual connection that is not in harmony with Scripture. It's not benign. It's dangerous. The second thing that he nails is that we seek God. We feed on Jesus through his self-revelation. The Scriptures. This is where we find him. We've talked a lot about this recently. The the scriptures, they're all about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to him as the coming redeemer. The gospels present him as the redeemer who has come. And the epistles point to Christ as the one who came to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. And I bring this up at the onset and I spend quite a bit of time here and, and use this as just one example of how the church has, has not adequately feeding on, on Christ, like mixing other spiritual traditions into the Christian faith, trying to, to commune with, with God and get a better experience. My question at the onset, what happens when we have not fed on Christ adequately? The result is a sick and anemic Christianity. So then the question is, is what is it mean to be healthy, a healthy Christian, a a healthy Christian that is is nourished by Christ Jesus, one who finds satisfaction in in Christ in the bread of life. It's when we find Christ in the scriptures, not in other practices. Jesus is saying here to the multitude, spiritual nourishment comes through Jesus himself, not the physical food that you get from him. Remember, they were searching for him for the food. They even tried to manipulate him into giving them more food. But Jesus is clear. He says that that he is the bread of life. In fact, he says it is stronger than this. He says, I am the bread of life. It isn't that the bread of life comes through Jesus. It isn't just something that happens when you find Jesus, but he is it. It is important here that Jesus, by using that phrase, I am, is setting himself up as being equal with God. This is how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. This wasn't a normal thing that that people would say. People would recognize this. To do this would be to put yourself on equal footing with God, and and everybody knew this. So when Jesus said this, it it was out of the ordinary. But it is so crucial. We don't get caught up in all of these other things. The physical food, in this case. The centering prayer and the various so-called spiritual exercises and the examples that we are talking about. Where do we find true spiritual nourishment? 
Where do we get fed? Where do we come away truly satisfied? Only in Christ Jesus, and we find Christ Jesus in the scriptures. This is why the doctrine of the sufficiency of God's word is so important. What this truth proclaims is that we don't find Christ in these other places. Some people are going to say, well, if we want a good relationship with Christ, if you, if, if you want to have a good relationship with him, you need to go outside of the scriptures. But they're not enough. And they say it explicitly. They say, we need something else besides the scriptures if we're going to have this good relationship with God. Or they say it implicitly, and they just do things that illustrate that they think we need something else. I bring this up at the the start here today because I, I want us to see what Jesus has been saying here, that he is the bread of life. That he is not just a bread, not just a portion, not just some area where you can find nourishment, but he is the true bread. He is, he is what the manna from heaven in the Old Testament foreshadowed. He's the, the sign that the five loaves and two fish the day before pointed to. Jesus is the bread of life. He's standing right there explaining this to him. They've heard him preach. They should have seen the truth. And then Jesus says in verse 36, but I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. Here's the truth. Jesus has been preaching to the people around the Sea of Galilee for a while now. This wasn't the first day that these people met Jesus. They had heard of him. They made an effort to go and hear him. Most likely, for most of these, it wasn't their first time hearing him or their first experience with him. Remember, They were keeping tabs on him. They went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to find him when they recognized he wasn't in the same place that he fed the multitude uh, the the day before. And here, Jesus gives them a, a rebuke. You've seen all of this, but you do not believe. And in other words, you've seen the sign, but you can't figure out where to go. You've seen the sign for the picnic area, but you cannot find the picnic area. Or to be more accurate, you've seen the sign for the picnic area, but you refuse to see, believe there is a picnic area. Verse 36 is a fact. These have seen Jesus, yet they do not believe. This isn't controversial. And when I say it's not controversial, I mean to the crowd. Not us. We're going to see that the teaching of Jesus here is what causes many disciples to leave later on. And this is the start of some very difficult teaching. And and this teaching that was apparently uh, controversial, and it was apparently, it was controversial. Now, it may be a little bit controversial today among some people, but that does not mean it isn't clear. So when we read verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is clearly saying that those who believe in him do so because of the actions of the Father, specifically the action in giving them to the Son. Or to make the connection with verse 36, and what we've previously seen, it is the Father then that enables these to believe. Remember that that these have asked Jesus, what is it that we are to do? 
What is the, the work of God that we're supposed to, to do? What do you want from us? And Jesus says that the work of God is that they believe in Jesus. Here Jesus is saying in verse 36, you've seen me, but you don't believe. In verse 37, Jesus is making this connection. They do not believe because the Father has not given them to the Son, or to say it differently, the Father has not enabled them to believe. All the Father has given me will come to me, and we could put in there, in belief. All that the Father has given me will come to me in belief, and it's already been made clear. Those that come to Jesus do so in belief. Then you have the flip side. Those that the Father enables to believe, those that do believe and come to Jesus, these he will never cast out. You've seen me, yet you do not believe. But if you do believe, those that do believe, you come to me, you'll never be cast out. Last week we spoke of two truths. We kind of took a, a break a, li a little bit from the Gospel of John. We took a, a question that, that came up but it does fit in here. The two truths that we talked about, those uh, that are truly believers, that, that, that are truly Christians, will persevere to the end. Now, of course, these persevere by the power of God and not by their own strength or might. It's a glorious and, and beautiful truth. We call it the, the perseverance of the saints. That's the, the doctrine. Better yet, the preservation of the saints. Preservation is, uh, has an emphasis on God's power and in keeping those who are his. Notice the, the phrase here, I will never cast out. These that truly believe do so because the Father has given them to the Son. And these that truly believe will never be cast away. God is not fickle. He does not change his mind. He doesn't change his mind on a whim to unsave a person. Do you see this here? Just to say that, that one is, is saved truly and then they are not would be to make Jesus into a, a liar. He says that those that come to him in belief, true saving faith, those that the Father gives him, he will never cast out. And I would say here, never means never. Notice that there are a couple things that need to be stressed. The first is, we are not only speaking of those who come to Christ and make a profession of faith. This is what we saw last week, right? In the second thing that we talked about, apostasy. That they're not, it's not just a mere outward profession of faith. That those who, who make a profession of faith and, and fall away. There are those who, who believe that they are Christians but at some point, they fall away. The parable of soils makes this abundantly clear. Some will hear the gospel. They will receive it with joy. And these will follow Jesus until something happens. Trials or pleasures, they will uh, abandon him. These were never Christians. They believed for a time on a certain level, but it was never saving faith. What we are talking about here are those who fall away. Here, Jesus is talking about those who are truly his. Those who are truly his. Those who the, the Father has given him. Who are truly his. These will never be cast out. Let's take a brief look at this, this doctrine, perseverance of the saints, or like I said earlier, preservation of the saints. 
This is a, a glorious doctrine that is part of what is referred to by many as the doctrines of grace. But this is this great truth that those who the Lord sets his eyes upon, these that respond to the gospel in faith, these the Lord not only regenerates, the Lord not only justifies them, but he also sanctifies them or, or grows them in godliness. But not only that, he glorifies them. He brings them to heaven. What he starts, he finishes. Meaning that their growing becomes finally mature, and that happens at the resurrection. John says it in our text. I will raise them up the last day. When we receive the, the glorified bodies, when we are free from sin and its effects. Let me share how, with you how R.C. Sproul puts it. He says this, quote, the New Testament teaches us that it is the Holy Spirit who alone raises us from the dead and he raises us unto eternal life. The purpose of God's election is to bring his people safely to heaven. What he starts, he promises to finish. Not only does he initiate the Christian life, but the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier, the one who convicts and the helper who is there to help in our preservation. End quote. Of course, this is what we see in John 6 here. That those who come to Jesus in faith, those who believe in him will never be cast out. Now, some at this point might try to read their own presumptions back into the text. They might say something like, well, it says that Christ will not cast them out. And well, that's true. It could be true that these will, have, that these will, will leave because of their own choice. Christ won't cast them out, but they might leave because of their own choice. So Jesus doesn't kick them out, but they choose to leave. The problem with this is Scripture itself. First of all, it is pretty obvious that Jesus isn't intending that that Jesus is an intent that Jesus isn't intending to say that here, especially since he reiterates in verse 39 that he has come to do the will of his Father, and the will of his Father is that he should lose none that has been given to him. Again, some might say, well, something like, well, that is the Lord's will. That's his desire. You might make the word will there, make desire. That's what he desires. That's what he wants. But things still happen that are outside of what God wants, outside of his will, besides the fact that this person, right, if they said this, would be saying that Jesus didn't accomplish the Father's will, only tried to. That isn't the way the term will is being used here. That Jesus tried to accomplish something that he didn't. The clear intention is that Jesus accomplishes the will of the Father. And that is that all who come to him in faith will never be cast out. Of course, Last week we referenced Philippians 1.6, Romans 8. I won't go into that again, but I'll just go a few chapters ahead. John chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. You can look at that if you want. Passage where Jesus says much the same thing. Let me read it. But the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Right? Signs point to me, point to Jesus. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So this adds a bit more difficulty for those who would would argue against preservation of the the saints in chapter 6. Here Jesus speaks again of the, the signs that he is doing. He says they bear witness to to Jesus. They point to him, yet people do not believe. Why is that? What is the the reason that they don't believe? Well, they're not amongst his sheep. And he gives his sheep eternal life. And those that he gives eternal life, they what? They never perish. They're not cast out. In fact, no one can snatch them out of his hand. And if that sounds a lot like John 6 and Romans 8 and the rest of this, it's because this is what scripture teaches. How does one become a sheep? The answer, according to John 10, is that the Father gives them to Jesus and these believe. And the Father is greater. And in fact, they cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. Here's another problem for the, the one that argues against preservation of the saints. And that is two words that are found throughout the New Testament. And these two words are the words sealed and earnest. The term earnest is drawn from a commercial language of the day. Uh, Today, we still have earnest money. When you go and you buy a house, sometimes you're asked to put money down. The earnest payment signifying that you're going to follow through with your payments. The word sealed would be understood in regard to a a signing ring, a a wax seal, or uh, on a letter or a scroll that that signifies who it is from. And therefore, uh, the only intended recipient can open it. I think it's also helpful to think in terms of canning fruit. If you leave fruit on the counter, it's going to spoil, but if it goes through the the canning process and it's sealed that way, the little dip on the top of the lid goes down, you know it is sealed. The intention there is that one could put it on the shelf and it will remain, remain fresh until it is opened. The scriptures speak of the believer being sealed or marked for its intended recipient. God started it, and in the end, he will deliver it. Or he will persevere, preserve the Christian until one comes and their salvation is fully realized on the last day. Let me just read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Here you'll see the idea, both of these terms are in this one text. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee or earnest of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see both of these ideas? The passage is about the the great blessings that we have in Christ, and we're told that we have this great inheritance. Although we haven't taken total possession of it, that's verse 14. So how do we know that this is in fact true? How do we know that this is ours? Well, the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with the Spirit. It's ours. It's guaranteed to get to its destination. The Spirit is our guarantee, our earnest payment, that we will take possession of it. The word guarantee there is important. 
Guarantee means to guarantee. When money is given to purchase, that is a a pledge or down payment that the full amount is going to be paid. So the Spirit guarantees that the believer will receive the inheritance that has been promised to them. Let me just move, let's move on. In these verses, starting in, in verse 38 then, we read this. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Notice, he's given me these, and I will raise them up on the last day. I want to draw your attention to the language here. It's very interesting to me, and we could have pointed this out earlier, in verse 37, where we read, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice the language there. All. All the Father gives me. It's a group of people. It's the the elect, a collective group. The Father gives him a, a group, and that group will come to him. We can't say, though, that God elects everyone. There's a, there's a specific group here. To say that God elects everyone doesn't make sense in this text. So all the Father gives Jesus will come to Jesus, and then you move to the individual. Whoever comes to me will never be cast out. Do you see that? The group, the collective, and then the individual, whoever. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. That is the individual. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. That is the group. That is the elect. You see the picture? There's this group, a select group that the Father gives him that he has come to save. Now get this. This is the purpose of the incarnation. This is the purpose of why Jesus came to earth. That Jesus would come to save, really save every person that the Father had given him. Jesus isn't a potential savior. He's a real savior. That not one that the Father had given him would be lost. Now, at this point, Don Carson reminds us of something very important, and that is that divine sovereignty in this in divine sovereignty in salvation is a major theme in John's gospel. It's come up time and time again. We've seen this over and over. This isn't the first time, and we're going to continue to see it. We've seen it already. Let me just remind you of one place where we saw this, uh, this truth come out very clear, and that was in John chapter 3 in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. We saw that, Nic- that Jesus here uses the term uh, born again. There, he used it to point out something that the, the individual cannot do. You, you can't make yourself be born again. It is uh, something that the Spirit of God does. It, it creates new life in you. This is the sovereignty in the sphere of salvation. And this theme is being extrapolated here. The purpose of the incarnation is to accomplish the Father's will. And that is to save every single person that God has determined to save. And let me complicate things a little bit. Remember that Jesus has said here in verse 30, You have seen me, but do not believe. He's talking to this multitude. 
Try to, try to picture this. Jesus isn't necessarily telling them, all hope is gone for you. He's not saying that. He's saying, for now, you don't believe. He's just making this statement. You do not believe. And I think if we say all hope is lost for them, we've gone way too far. Certainly, some from this group could hear sometime in the future and respond in faith and be numbered with the elect. That's a a distinct possibility, and I would guarantee it probably did happen. What Jesus is saying, saying here is that they do not believe, and those who do not believe, and I would argue those who remain unbelieving, are eternally lost. Jesus is placing these in that group. It's a warning. I want you to see it. It's, he is essentially saying that if you continue to not believe, you will be lost. However, everyone that does believe, they will what? They will never be cast out. In the middle of this difficult truth that they're seeing, there is a, a marvelous invitation you don't believe. And if you don't believe, if you remain unbelieving, you, one day you're going to be cast out. But if you do, if you believe in Jesus, the bread of life, you will never be cast out. It's a, a wonderful invitation in the middle of verse 37. It, it should be taken that way. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In other words, the multitude is now unbelieving, but there is a call. A gospel call. If you would just come to Jesus, if you would just see that the sign, if you would just come to him and you would place your faith and trust in him to recognize that he is the the savior to come to, to redeem you from your sin, the curse of sin and death. If you would just put your faith in him and believe in, in him, he will save you and you will never be cast out. There is tremendous hope in Christ Jesus. Believe in him. I said that this was complicated. And it is because Jesus is telling this group of people who are following him. I mean, get this. This group of people traveled and went through remarkable lengths to follow him, to get there. They crossed the Sea of Galilee to get there. They're following him. This is good. You don't want to forfeit what you got here, right? You got momentum. They're following you. You want to keep them following you. He's telling them. If you don't believe and you continue to not believe and you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're going to be lost. Or to use the language of verse 40, you will not be raised up the last day. If you can, I mean, that's the implication there, right? If you continue in your unbelief, you will not be raised one day. That's a hard pill to swallow. That's why both easy believism and seeker-sensitive approaches are so appealing but so dangerous. In the first, it makes it very easy to believe, easy to follow. Well, if you just believe uh, that Jesus existed, that he was a good example for you, and you try to emulate his ways and walk in his pattern, I mean, you just make it easy to believe and easy to follow. Seeker-sensitive approaches don't say anything that might offend somebody. They make it really easy to follow. You don't want to offend the lost person. You want to keep them following. You want to keep the the momentum you have so you don't talk about hell. You don't talk about sin. You don't talk about anything that might make somebody uncomfortable. We want them in the door and we want them to stay at the cost of some really important things that these people need to know. Jesus here is a great example 
Getting them in the door wasn't an end in itself. Jesus got them to follow. If he was following a seeker-sensitive model, he would have kept giving them food so that they would have continued to follow him. And hopefully, in their continuing to follow him, they would at some point believe. But instead, Jesus points to the dire consequences of unbelief. And believe me, they got it. You will not be raised up the last day if you remain in your unbelief. Let me just close with this. Look at verse 40. It isn't really anything new, and we've talked about it a little bit. But Jesus expresses the will of the Father this way. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes. Now recognize this is something the, the, the multitude is failing to do. Jesus has pointed this out explicitly. The multitude is failing in this regard. But yet this is the will of the Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes. It is these that have eternal life, and it is these who will be raised up on the last day. Now I want to ask you a question, and perhaps this is why the subject is so difficult for some. It will be difficult for people in our text, as we're going to see. But why do some believe and others not? Jesus says to the people here that they have seen him. They've seen the the signs. It it pointed to him, and yet they, they failed to believe. Why were they failing to believe? The answer is grace. Apart from the grace of God, there is not one person that would truly believe. Grace is undeserved favor. We cannot understand grace without understanding what we deserve. We deserve the penalty for violating God's commands. We deserve divine justice. We deserve paying for our crimes. Grace is God giving new life to those who do not deserve it. To those who deserve eternal damnation, those who deserve to bear the weight of God's wrath, grace is God giving new life to those who do not deserve it. There are two ways to look at what Jesus says here, essentially. One is to explain it away, to, to explain what Jesus means here and say, well, he really means that all people are, are given to Jesus and those who respond are, are saved and I mean, to, to, to do this is, is just playing gymnastics with the, the text. It's making the Bible say something that, that isn't there because it fits a theology that you want it to fit. The problem is, it isn't what Jesus is saying. And the other way to look at this is to, to marvel at the grace of God, the certainty of God's grace. Some will have us believe that God grants grace to all people, because it's something in them, like their faith. But as soon as that happens, it isn't grace anymore. It becomes deserved or merited favor. We do something, therefore God does something. Here we see that God determined beforehand, before the foundation of the world, that a group of people that he would give to them, that he would give to the Son, The Son would come in human form and flesh, and he would accomplish the will of his Father to save them. Unmerited favor of God starts long before one believes. 
which is clearly alluded to in our text when it speaks of the Father giving a group of individuals to the Son. We know from Ephesians 1 that happens in before the foundation of the earth. It is explicitly spoken of in Ephesians 1. To make this simple, though, God was thinking about you before you were ever thinking about him. I mean, think about this, the certainty of God's grace. God was thinking about you before you were ever thinking about him. Before you ever had your eyes set on God, he had his eye on you. When we start thinking about the grace of God and its certainty, it is very humbling because one cannot think about what God has done for us that not only did he set his focus on these things long ago, but he sent Jesus to take on flesh, to live and die for those who would believe, to take the punishment that was due them, to accomplish the will of the Father, to accomplish his purpose. One of my favorite passages is in Romans 5. Romans 5, 6, we read this. For well, we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Just think about that for a second. Who are the we in that text? Well, if you go back and look at the context, it is those who have been justified by faith, those who have peace with God through Christ Jesus. Here Paul is saying that it was this group that while they were both weak and ungodly, well, they were weak, they couldn't do it themselves. They couldn't reach out and, and get God. God had to do it for them. They were so weak. Not only were they too weak to come to salvation themselves, but they were ungodly. They didn't want to. In that state, Christ died for them. This is the certainty of grace. In verse 8, the same chapter. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, God shows his love toward us. This is that group again. Paul is speaking to those who are believers, reminding them of what Christ had done for them. God shows his love for us, even though we were sinners. We we're ungodly. He shows favor toward those who are his, his sheep. Undeserved favor. We deserved the wrath of God, but that wrath was poured out on Christ for our sake. This is the love of God demonstrated for those who are his. Who are his? Those who believe. This is a great and wonderful call. To hear the gospel, to hear Christ presented, what he has done, to say, and if you believe this, if you trust in him with your whole heart, if you believe in what he has done, that he took your place, that he bore the penalty that I deserved, that we might have life in his name, and that life is certain. Certain. Grace isn't a, it's not a whim. It's not God's fickleness, God giving grace, take it away. The fact is, his sheep, he knows them. 
intimately. He knows them. He's always known them before the foundation of the earth. That is a truth that is found in Scripture. The other part of it is there is a wonderful call in the midst of all of this. It's tremendously hard teaching. I mean, we're going to find this out in, in John chapter 6. It's hard teaching. I mean, everybody, all this multitude is going to leave. And the 12 are going to be the only ones left. And Jesus is going to turn to them and say, what, are you going to leave too? And they're going to say, no. Where else would we go? You're the, ones that, you're the one that has the, the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? We can't go anywhere else. You see, there's a, a marvelous call in the midst of all of this to believe. If you believe, you will never be cast out. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, come to you this morning. We thank you for grace that you your eye was, was set on us before we ever had an inkling that you existed before we were ever created. But yet, Lord, we recognize that our salvation our salvation is not in anything that we do. It can't be. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.